they said 26 girls, 24 boys. And that's when it really first started to hit me. That's when they became more than just numbers to me. Wow. These are children. These are humans out in the world and there's 50 of them. And I walk out of there, my head spinning. Hello and a heartfelt welcome to all our listeners as we embark on season four of the Family Twist podcast. I'm Kendall Austin Stulz, and my life story is a tapestry of unexpected turns from being adopted as an infant to losing my adoptive parents by the time I was 17, and then in a twist of fate, finding my birth family through the magic of DNA testing in 2017. And I'm Corey Stulz, Kendall's partner on this life adventure. When we uncovered his paternal birth family's roots on the East Coast, I knew our next chapter was calling us there to mend the missing pieces of Kendall's heart with the love of newfound relatives. Our podcast began as a single thread, a narrative of my own, but it is woven into a vibrant quilt of stories celebrating the complexities of DNA surprises, adoption, donor conception, NPEs, surrogacy, and the myriad ways families come together. Together, we've been welcomed into an incredible community with each guest sharing their own family twist. And through it all, we found strength in each other. Thank you for letting us share our passion and these remarkable stories with you. The bonds we formed with you, our listeners, and the stories you've shared have only deepened our commitment to this journey. Family Twist isn't just a podcast. It's a celebration of the unexpected ties that bind us all. Thank you for joining us on this fantastic ride. Dylan Stone Miller's story begins with a common thread many of us can relate to. Unexpected expenses and the influence of peers. It's interesting to dig into the mindset of then 20-year-old Dylan making a decision that will have lifelong implications, not just for himself, but for at least 90 children. The lack of regulation for the fertility industry, such as background checks and the reliance on self-disclosure for genetic health history, raises important questions about the industry's practices and the level of scrutiny involved in sperm donation. Dylan's experience highlights a significant gap between what donors are led to believe and the reality of the situation, especially regarding the number of births and the use of their genetic material. The first part of our conversation with Dylan explores the importance of understanding legal documents and how certain language can create loopholes that affect many lives. We're flat out horrified by the mismanagement of donor information and family limits in the fertility industry. But let's hear from Dylan, who knows this better than some. We appreciate his candor and allowing humor to play a part in his story. Welcome, Dylan. I'm fascinated by your story, but to begin, I would love for you to take us back however many years to how you made the decision to donate at a fertility clinic. Well, I was 20 years old. I had some sudden expenses come up and my roommate was donating at the time. So he suggested if I was open to it, that he could refer me to Zytex to, to start donating. And when I thought about it for a little bit with my tiny little 20 year old mind and came to the conclusion that if I was helping families and was under the impression that I was also helping science as well as paying for many expenses that came up in college and grad school, including tuition, I decided to jump into it and was under the impression that there was going to be a limit on the number of births and, and that any unused genetic material was going to go to research. All of that sounded like something that was kind of too good to be true. And it turns out in some ways it was. What was the process for you when you go in and what kind of like information did they need from you? Did they do a background check? 
They did not do a background check. They relied on me to answer honestly about my family's genetic health history. I was required to give two successful samples with the right motility and count, and then they would allow me into the program. They did do some blood work and things like that, and then continued to give me sort of free healthcare while I was there. That was another little incentive. I was getting physicals and blood work and STI panels and all of these things done for free as I was donating. But the, the process was more or less, are you over 5'10"? There was a minimum height requirement. They asked me that as soon as I walked in the door. I, they made sure that I hadn't been to Africa in the last five years, just the continent in general. I guess hmm. there are some things about communicable diseases. They asked me if I was a man who has sex with men because men who have sex with men are still not allowed to donate sperm in the U.S. So all of these sort of weird laws that they had to make sure that I could jump through the hoops in order to start donating. So very strange, very surreal process. And you got to sit down and you put the little napkin down on the chair and they have material for you to view and whatnot. It's a hilarious and strange and awkward process, honestly. Wow. Right. Like the op opposite of natural, right? <laughs> Very unnatural feeling. Yeah. I've never had to kind of make sure my environment was sterile before. So yeah, a lot of opportunity for humor here. I, I try to keep my eye on the, the funny. Right. Uh, did they limit the number of times you could come in? And what did they tell you about how many families might be benefiting from your donation? I was only able to go in three times a week. They said you need to take about 48 hours to regenerate numbers, sperm count. I went in about three times a week for multiple years, I would say. And they said that there would be a limit of 40 families. I was under the impression at the time that it was 40 children. That's what my peers informed me. There was just a misunderstanding among my you know, university community as to what the actual limit was. I was going based on what my peers were telling me. And it turns out when I look back at the contract that I signed, that it does say 40 families. It also says actually that I have been informed that it was 40 families. Not that the limit actually was 40, but that I, as a donor, had been informed that it was 40. Some sneaky language in the contract there sure. that contributed to them flowing way past the limit that I was told. Well, absolutely. Most likely it's young guys your age, college students who probably don't read a lot of contracts and so they're able to do essentially. Yeah. Yeah. If I had a lawyer look at it, they probably would have said, okay, what did they tell you verbally? Because that's a lot different than what's here. And they put all this information in the first paragraph too. So they can be like, no, look, here it is. And they're so friendly and when you're young and there's some friendly middle-aged women saying, oh, you get to help and you get money and you get science uh, and, uh, then it's really easy for, for a young man to say, okay, this, this sounds great. Right. No downside. Right. Yeah. I was given no educational material, no counseling, no nothing about the process or about what the experience of donor conceived people are. I didn't know the term donor conceived. I, I was going off of simply what my peers, my uh, misinformed peers, and, you know, these people behind the counter at Zytex were telling me. And based on what they said, I, I agreed. Did they tell you right then and there about what contact might be between the parents and you? 
Yes. So I agreed to do open ID donor, which meant the kids can reach out to the sperm bank and then the sperm bank will reach out to me when they turn 18. The sperm bank promised me anonymity until that time. And then left things like my first name and my home city and my parents' occupations and things like that. These context clues that if you spent any amount of time just searching those things on Facebook, you could find me. I was found by several mothers throughout the following years, and one of them happened to reach out to me. This is not that long ago. We've had some folks who were donor-conceived on the show. A lot of them are older and didn't have access. There was no Facebook. There was no internet when that happened or when they found out. This was like, what, just like a dozen years ago, right? 2011 is when I started, 12 okay. years ago. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, I was found about 10 years after donating. So you donated for a few years. Was there anything weird or did anything pop up between the time you stopped donating to when you first heard from a mother? Yeah, there were certainly some things that contributed to my family twisting, if you will. As I was still donating, they asked me one day, hey, do you want to know the number of births that have happened? I said, sure. They told me there have been two births and I was walking around maybe 23 or so at that time thinking, wow, like two children now in the world. That's beautiful. And these families, that's great. Uh, the next time I checked in, there had been eight births and I was like, wow, that's a big number, but incredible. The more love out in the world, that's great. The next time this was in about 2016, 2017, Zytex calls me and tells me that I owe them money. I was really confused. Maybe I missed something in the contract. Sometimes they would withhold money from my pay and call it incentive pay so that you keep coming in and then they'll mm. release that pay after a certain amount of time. I thought maybe they released too much of that or something. And they were calling me over and over again. Um, but I go in and I, I say, what's going on? I don't want you to call creditors and mess up my credit score and everything. They say, no, we just need you to leave the sample, do some blood work and Signs of paperwork. And it turns out they just needed me to come in and, and do those three steps in order for them to release the final six months of my donations in order to make more money and distribute it to several more families, at least. I was confused the whole time. It was this whirlwind experience where I went from, I was going to have to deal with some legal financial stuff to just to being in the room again, putting the napkin down and, and, uh, leaving a sample. As I'm leaving and, and still wildly confused, they say, hey, do you want to know the number of birds? And they pull me into the room and, and they tell me 50, five, zero. I said, 15? They go, no, 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 50, five, zero. So then they said, do you want to know the gender breakdown? They said, 26 girls, 24 boys. That's when it really first started to hit me. That's when they became more than just numbers to me. Mm -hmm. Wow, these are children. These are humans out in the world and there's 50 of them. And I walk out of there, my head spinning. It speaks to sort of the, what Zytex is morally okay doing and uh, forcing me to come in so that they can release the last six months. Maybe if they had told me that they needed to release the, the last six months of, of samples, I, I might've come in, but they had decided to get my attention and they sure did. In early 2020, I was looking for work, uh, as, as were many, and I called Zytex to see if I could start donating again. This was well before I understood what some of the ethical implications of continuing to donate after there had been so many births. Just a lot of strange experiences talking with Zytex here. Um, 
in between that time on the subject of family, um, I met a woman, uh, she had a little boy from a, a previous relationship um, who was not mine biologically. And I fell in love with her. I fell in love with the kid and chose to be his raising father in part because I knew at that time there had been eight births and my DNA was passed on. And because of being a donor, I was better able to push through the stigma that society places on men of quote unquote, raising another man's child. I became a father in my mid twenties, in part because of these wild experiences that I had had choosing to donate. So at what point then did you first hear from a family? October, 2020 rolls around a few months off of a divorce at this point, estranged from my non-biological son, who I call my soul son. I didn't know if I would see him again. I didn't know if he was all right. He, ha he has asthma. I was in a really difficult spot when I get a message on Instagram on the first day of a new job into a, a new career. I did a coding boot camp over the summer of 2020 <laughs> in the throes of divorce and isolation and emerged into this new job in the tech in, in space. 30 minutes into the new job, I check my Instagram and I see a message from a stranger, a woman I had never met. She says, Hey, it's Canadian Thanksgiving. And I wanted to say thank you for the gift of children. I was literally shaking hands with my new colleagues and clients that were filing into the room or well, not shaking hands, but bumping elbows. And I flip over to her profile and I see pictures of a biological daughter for the first time in my life. And it moved me to tears. I had to really choke them back in order to not be known as that weirdo who cried on his first day of right. work. Uh, but it was an emotional morning for me. I learned of the little girl. Another little girl was on the way. Uh, it turned out this mother had searched for me because she actually lost a little boy of hers shortly after childbirth due to medical negligence. The doctors and nurses messed up. And so she was searching for missing pieces of this little boy. And me being the donor, she found me after a few years of searching and chose to reach out on this day. So I learned of a little girl, another one on the way, and the death of this little boy within a matter of minutes. All while I was at work trying to support my colleagues and clients, it was a really, really intense experience for me that after about 48 hours of sort of mourning, and processing, I suggested, she told me that there were many families actually that had used my sperm, suggesting that there were many families. I, I realized, hey, if they want to connect, I'm here to answer questions or show up in whatever way that it, it might make sense. I, I didn't really know exactly what I was agreeing to or how many families there were that I was committing to connecting with. 48 hours later, she created a new Facebook group and invited any of the mothers who wanted to join to join. That week was a whirlwind of, of a week. Was it your uh, understanding that all, a lot of those women that were mothers had been given the same information that the original woman had been given from the company? Yeah, they all had the same donor profile, which is very scant. It's two pages maybe with some health information, some of my stats like height and weight and a little bit about my ancestry. A single paragraph that I wrote when I was 20 about who I am 
which is so still, I read it. And some of the mothers said that that was a defining part of the reason why they chose me. And, and looking back at it, I was a child then I'm writing about mm. soccer. And I think I had one line in this paragraph about it would make me happy to help families or to help bring life into this world. And, and that I, I think reached some of the mothers and then they have a baby picture and an adult picture. And, and that's basically all they have to raise their children. Thinking back to when I was filling out that paperwork and, and everything, I was like, that's not really representative of, of who I am. So maybe I can come in and, and help them by giving them more context for who their children are and who knows what it will turn into. I had no idea what I was committing to wow. really at the time. How did these mothers discover that they, they shared a donor? I, I would think that would be something that would be private. It turns out there are a number of forums out there where you can searching things as the donor sibling registry and a few others where you can say, hey, I use this donor at this bank and we uh, are looking for donor siblings out there. In 2017, we started a small group of two or three families and slowly that just grew and grew and grew. And it's, it's largely the single mothers and the lesbian couples who sought out that information and chose to connect. They make up the majority of the group. And I, I think they were just searching for, not necessarily me, but for a, a community of, of folks who, who chose that. I'd, I'd be curious to actually hear a little bit more about their why. why I don't want to say their why for them, but they did the work to seek this community out. And it, it slowly grew to now 45 mothers. From the get-go, were they posting photos of the kids and stuff like that? Yeah, that first week was wild. After I agreed to join the group, within seconds, really, there was a post with uh, two more children. My phone would buzz and it would be a notification, not of somebody liking a photo, but it would be a, a notification of a new child or new children or a whole new family. I kept on seeing pictures and videos and content, the lives, the joyous lives, the social media lives of these children and these families. And it was overwhelming. I, I felt bad at work. I kept on picking up my phone and feeling and celebrating this beautiful life being brought into the world. Very, very distracting. How did the suggestion first come up about you meeting a child in person? It developed over months and months of building trust and, and friendship. After that first week, and I started to wrap my head around it a little bit, I said, okay, I'm ready to start answering questions. And they asked me things like, hey, do you have this weird toe? Half the kids have this toe that sort of sticks out. So I sent them feet pics <laughs> <laughs> and funny things like that. They asked me some health information. They asked me for more pictures of myself and, and of my sister. And I asked them some questions too and, and let them know, hey, here's the total number. It's 77. None of them were aware of that. In fact, many of them thought that it was a limit of 10 families in their countries, but it turns out Tytex distributes internationally. We were just communicating over the months. I started one-on-one -on -one messaging with many of the mothers. I built a rapport. And the mother who founded the group suggested, hey, can we do a video call with you and my two little girls in Australia? I said, sure, yeah, let's go for it. And that was about uh, six weeks or, or two months into the process. So if you can imagine meeting your biological children for the first time via Zoom, 
it was a wild experience and I was shocked. It was so easy at the time. It was just such a fun, chill interaction with these kids. I just had this wonderful experience meeting these two little girls. And afterwards, when we got off the call, you know, the tears, waterworks started. You were being identified as the biological father. Yeah, I think, I don't know if the term biological father was used in this specific call, but it, they understood their story. They knew where they came from. They knew the sperm and the egg. One of the children was very young, so she didn't know yet. She just saw some eyes that looked like hers and, right. and uh, was sort of being silly and stuff. But the older one definitely understood who I was and, and what our relationship was and my God, she just looks all exactly like me. It was like mm -hmm. looking into an interdimensional mirror at a different version of yourself. They understood. I started to understand more. That was a real turning point for me. And it turns out there was a family about 45 minutes away from where I was living at the time. They heard about the video call. We had a great rapport. The, the mother is actually donor conceived and has her own amazing story of what it meant for her son not to have to worry or wonder where he comes from in she was motivated to have him meet me and to sort of end this pattern in her family of not knowing their biological origins. We got together about three or four months after having joined the group and had a wonderful afternoon of throwing the Frisbee and playing with transformers and just doing little boy stuff. I had plenty of experience doing it with my soul son. And had, had an amazing afternoon. And once some pictures of that started to circulate, the trust continued to, to build within the community and, and people started to be open to me visiting. Who was your support system mentally through all this? Were you, were you going to therapy? Were you talking to your family? That's a great question. Thank you for asking that because it is, it is not an easy process. At the time, there was nobody that I knew that had context enough to help me just wrap my mind and heart around all of this. So I was in therapy. I had a therapy session the day after I got that first Instagram message. That was a funny, wild therapy session. I was like, Hey, you know how we've been processing my divorce for the last six months and digging into these old family patterns. Well, here's a disruption on all of that. I was speaking to a therapist. I started to see some like I can be a little woo-woo, new agey. I started to talk to some Reiki intuitives and was communicating with my friends as much as they were able to, but nobody knew what to say or what to do for me here. I was going through so much with my divorce and estrangement from my soul son. This experience was the only joy in my life, but became such a large part of my identity that it it took up a lot of space in the room when I wouldn't hang out with friends. I would always bring the conversation back to, oh, you know, that's like the kids thing to the point where my friends found it just heavy, too, too much. I stopped getting the support from my immediate community. I was trying to convince my immediate family, hey, this is real. This is important to me. These are human beings out there here in the world. These are your genetic grandchildren or your genetic nieces and nephews. My sister was very supportive. My grandmother was very supportive, but my parents were still in denial for a little while. And my other grandmother, as liberal as she may be, had a hard time. But I, I, I talk about isolation. I, I was physically isolated. I was 
surrounded by all these amazing families and so much love, but it was through my phone. It was just out of reach. It was not tangible. It wasn't present in my immediacy. When I hung up the phone with a family, for instance, I was back in, in the house where I was raising a, a little boy with my ex-wife and, and, and it was a very, very difficult time for me. So therapy helped. Eventually I found a guy in the Bay area who had gone public about meeting and spending time with his donor children for about the last 25 years. And I realized, whoa, I'm not the very first person to do this. And, and thank goodness for this man, uh, goodness for this man, uh, goodness for this man. We're going to pause here because Dylan's story takes on some very unexpected and heartwarming turns. The second part of our conversation with Dylan is available for download right now. Before we close this portion, it's important to note that we can't imagine the emotional roller coaster Dylan went through. From the initial pride in helping families to the shock of learning about the number of children conceived from his donations, Dylan's story challenges traditional notions of family and fatherhood. His role as a raising father to his stepson, whom he refers to as his sole son, and his openness to his donor-conceived children speaks volumes about the evolving definition of what it means to be a parent. Technology's role in connecting donor-conceived individuals with their biological parents is a double-edged sword that can bring people together while also raising privacy concerns. We'll highlight the importance of having a support system while navigating complex personal discoveries and the limitations of traditional support networks in such unique situations. We're going to continue exploring the broader implications for the fertility industry donor-conceived individuals, and potential regulatory changes with more interviews throughout season four and beyond. In fact, our next episode features Laura High, who Dylan mentioned in his episode. Laura is an activist, comedian, and spitfire. You're just gonna love her. Family Twist features original music from Cosmic Afterthoughts and is presented by Savoir Faire Marketing Communications. 